episode four of the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our episodes at hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I welcome questions and comments on any of the shows. My email is hope at upc-online.org. The world is reeling from yet another crisis in so many months, and this time it's systemic racism. In the last couple of weeks, after a series of violent injustices against people of color, the groundswell of support in the streets in response to the murder of George Floyd and several other instances in succession of just brutal racism have captured the world's attention, and I'm inspired seeing people standing up, speaking out, and fighting for justice. I want to say that UPC stands in support of anti-oppression efforts, and we recognize the importance of this historic moment, and we stand in solidarity with the Black and Brown community and all efforts to end systemic racism and injustice. I want to give a recommendation for another vegan podcast. I love podcasts and I listen to a lot of them and I highly recommend the Bearded Vegans podcast with Andy and Paul. Their podcast, they dive deeply into the gray areas of vegan advocacy and I think they have a really great take on those issues. I think they're really smart and I really like their latest two episodes, episode 231 and 232. One is on media literacy and online activism, and the other is called On Solidarity and Hypocrisy Memes. And I think both of these and a lot of their um, podcast is really relevant to our current events and how the vegan community should respond and, and, and can be supportive right now and can support in um, the right way. So I really recommend that podcast, The Bearded Vegans. Shout out for The Bearded Vegans. <laughs> and I want to jump right into our guest speaker interview soon because Connie Spence had so much to share and I want to give her as much of a voice as I can. But first, I do want to just run down some basics about one subject that we talked about. We talked about numerous things, but one thing we talked about was farm subsidies. Our veganism is working. Actually, demand for meat is going down. Demand for plant-based meat is going up. So why is it that the number of animals killed every year often stays steady or even increases? It's not that, you know, the human population is increasing. It's not exports. It's the manipulated farming system that has subsidized its way out of consumer supply and demand. So what is a subsidy? A subsidy is a sum of money granted by the government or another public body to assist an industry or business so the price of the commodity or service they provide remains low or competitive. And with farm subsidies, the vast majority of the money is going to animal farming and animal feed, the feed that's grown to feed the animals. This it keeps a terribly cruel industry basically fail-proof. 
The money covers losses for any reason, including when demand drops. It keeps unhealthy animal products, like fast food, artificially cheap. These subsidies were originally to protect the food industry, the food system, so people could be fed, but it has, that was back in the 1930s, it has now evolved into something very different, and the government has been using our tax dollars to bail out corporate agribusiness from their failing animal food market. It's corporate welfare. And... Guess how much of these billions of dollars go to help the farmers that grow vegetables and fruits and legumes and seeds and other healthy plant-based foods? Less than 1%. Less than 1% of the billions of dollars in farm subsidies go to help farmers that are growing plant-based foods. It's a terrible system. These farm policies insulate the animal agriculture industry against falling demand, and animals are bred and slaughtered in this horrific system of exploitation. Whether demand is up or down doesn't matter. The government covers their costs, and it's undermining our veganism with our own tax dollars. There's a huge amount of surplus meat being stored in federal facilities. Dairy gets poured out by the billions of gallons, not only in the time of the pandemic, Uh, I know that we're seeing this in the news now, but they've been doing this ever since dairy demand has been dropping for the last 20 years. Despite changes in demand, animal ag is increasing production. So this is really a serious problem. And they have the lobbying power to really ensure that these policies continue to support animal ag. Corporate animal agribusiness pays lobbyists $18 million every year to lean farm policy towards animal agribusiness's advantage. As a result, these farm bills and the other legislation ensure animal farmers profit regardless of how Americans vote with their dollars. It's really outrageous, and our next guest is fighting against this. So I am really excited to introduce our speaker today. We have Connie Spence with us today, and she is the founder of the Vegan Justice League and the Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and they are a federal vegan lobbying group influencing legislation to bring fairness back to farm policy and in subsidies for animal agriculture. And Connie has done some really creative animal rights activism. She has used a giant stage light to shine vegan messages onto buildings. It's been called the vegan Batman light. And Connie projects these uh, vegan messages that span 75 feet in diameter, can be seven stories tall. She's shown this light projection in some uh, really diverse locations like major freeways in LA, the Staples Center, Las Vegas hotels, and other places. And now through her organizations, she's dedicated to educating vegans about how the food system is monopolized and rigged by the livestock farmers and what we need to do to solve it. So I'm really excited to talk to Connie Spence today. I think she is going to have a lot of wonderful things to tell us. And I'm just wondering, Connie, what got you into activism? What, how did you go vegan? What got you started in the movement? 
Hey, uh, yeah, so thank you for having me, first of all. Um, and I'm happy to talk about like that range of where you uh, become a vegan and then transition to vegan activist and, and then transition to um, getting political. I talk about, you know, first we went vegan, then we became activists, now we must lobby. And so this goes right along with that. So um, I went vegan um, 10 years ago. Uh, I was vegetarian for three years. I was one of those cheese holdouts where I literally was vegan in every way, including no leather, no household products, but except for cheese. So yeah. for three years, I mine was, was- Mine was ice cream. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> so this cheese holdout like happened for three years. That was 10 years ago. And then, yeah, I mean, my health actually improved. I don't know if you experienced that, but at the time I did have, I was 30 and I did have my own ailments that were, um, a lot of it had to do with like IBS, like where your stomach is just, I was one of those women that it, it would be three to six days before I'd go to the bathroom. You know, I was carrying so much waste wow. and all it took was for me to be vegan and daily. I'm, I became very regular and I had taken medications for that. I had adult acne that was cystic on my face and I had dermatologists tell me that, Oh, you have a hormone problem. So, so let's give you all these extra hormone pills to regulate it. And it two weeks without cheese. And I didn't ever get another cyst cystic like acne on my face again. So that was, that was going vegan then activism. You know, you have to think about social media because I really feel social media is what started like making us even realize um, how amazing and cool activism could be and not undermining people who have been doing activism for years. But I think in 2015 or so, maybe 16, you started seeing groups of people consistently go out and do activism daily, weekly, you name it. And they were trying to gather people together and they would videotape their activism and it would be marches and it would be um, and then you started seeing disruptions. And then I wasn't one of those people that went vegan and became an activist right away. I didn't, it didn't even dawn on me. Like I was always evangelizing and talking about it, but it had never dawned on me, even as an advertising major in college, that activism is such a powerful way to, to veganize people. Tell us a little about your projection activism, the projecting onto buildings. How do you do it? And, and what gave you that idea? Yeah, so I had joined other people's activism and it didn't fit my personality, like yelling at people, holding a sign that they can't read from far away and um, that sort of thing. It just didn't vibe with my personality. And so I would go kind of reluctantly to do activism, knowing it was powerful, but was just like, ugh, you know, I, I just... I have a different personality and, and I, and I just think that, um, to have to have a lot of people to do something to be a more effective. I wanted to figure out something where I could do it alone and be just as effective. So I saw an article 2016, right after Trump got elected and, uh, believe it or not, there's some sentiment that probably matches today. Uh, someone had shined a light on a hotel in Atlanta 
and it said F Trump spelled out the F obviously. Mm. And it was huge, a huge light that looked like the hotel was branded with F the, the words F Trump. And the article goes on to say like the police didn't know how to shut this guy down because technically he was on a public sidewalk. He was not trespassing physically. The light isn't vandalism because, you know, it, it isn't defacing property with monetary value. And I was like, oh my God, I need to do this. That is brilliant. And, you know, it could just be me. And I figured out what the equipment was from a lighting store. It actually was a scavenger hunt for a while. Um, I tried to search online. There's like no, no one giving you like a lesson on that. So this lighting store in Los Angeles, I showed them that what they were doing and they said, okay, you'll need this, 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 and this. And $2,000 later, (laughs) it was like vacation money. I was like, you know what, whatever. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And so, and so the first time I tried it, I had no idea how to use the equipment and I did it at the Los Angeles Farmer John Slaughterhouse over their fence in into their property on their courtyard. Wow. And it was so powerful to see. What what was and the message that you had shared? I, I think several one said something like, um, these pigs come, you know, to the slaughterhouse begging for our forgiveness or uh, these these pigs fight for their last breath, just like we would in their place mm. and stuff like that. Powerful. Um, yeah. And then I started shining light on walls everywhere, um, all over the city on p- giant public, you know, um, stadiums. And I started putting things that I was, I would play around with the messages because people would come find me. It would be like a scavenger hunt for people to find me they'd see the light from really far away you can see it from about a half mile away and then they would they would come and be like I was wondering where this was coming from was their first thing they'd say and (laughs) and and again like it was instantly that that person wasn't yelling back about go bacon you know where they were like telling me that was so cool you know Mm. and and so I started putting stuff, playing with messages based on how they'd react. And I think one of the best formats was like a factor fiction, like on something. So factor fiction, 99% of all animals you ever eat are under six months old, which is a fact. And so when I started putting the factor fiction stuff, that was really powerful, I think, to the passive audience because it made them think and they all, they honestly wanted to guess and that, you know, is that a fact? And it just, you know, you could see them really opening up when they found out um, that it was. So yeah, I've been, you know, I did that for like two or three years, dealt with like, God, the amount of police interactions. I've really became a pro at dealing with police. Um, I will say from a privileged person's standpoint, um, I would come really prepared Um, I'd come with like a a binder with my rights and letters that have been sent to the mayor and stuff like that to show them that I was a, that my rights would be infringed if they shut me down and had helicopters, drones, people trying to take my equipment and 
you know, kind of scuffling with me. I've had a wild ride with goodness. the vegan Batman light. <laughs> that's awesome. How creative. I mean, that's really, really wonderful. I, I, I hope others pick up that idea because how cool is that they, they can't really shut you down, that you're on public property. It's not really defacing anything. So they probably just have to wait you out. Yep. The only thing if someone does it, I would recommend is you can't put advertising language on it. It has to be free speech. So you can't say go to earthlings.com. You can't do that or you'll get shut down because you can't use somebody's property to advertise your thing. You can say stuff like go, go Dallas Cowboys or God is great or um, the factor fiction stuff that I do, it, you know, for animals rights movement. I'm only po pointing out like what someone else could do. They could uh -huh. put a thought process and an ideology up there. You can't, you cannot make it seem like an advertisement or put URLs for people to go to. Okay. Um, good, good to know. So. So I, I want to ask you about your organizations. So you uh, focus on animal ag subsidies and farming practices. You have two organizations, the Vegan Justice League and the Agricultural Fairness Alliance. So how are these two groups different? And you talked about the system being rigged for animal agriculture. How, how does that work? And how are these two groups addressing the problem? Sure. So um, these two groups are sister organizations. Vegan Justice League, where you can find us at veganjusticeleague.com, is the education arm of why the food system is rigged and how we must address it. AgricultureFairnessAlliance.org is the lobbying name that politicians see. And so they work together in just synergy to, to teach vegans that, okay, we became activists and now we're seeing the agriculture system do things that go against us with our taxes. How do we change that? So I founded um, them on the premise that I wanted to change the rigged food system. So explain what the subsidies are sure. uh, and, and how, you know, how that is connected, how our taxes are connected, all of that. I think this is something that people don't realize uh, how deep, deeply um, these subsidies are propping up the animal ag industry. Sure. So I founded these groups um, basically to combat what was going on and bring back supply and demand to the food system back. And so I founded this, uh, these groups with my co-founder, Laura Reese, and it was because I found out the food system is rigged. A lot of people in our movement don't know that. And we talk a lot about supply and demand when we're doing activism. So in my mind, this is where we're using our vegan voices, right? I'm, I'm not, when I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm letting vegans know that the food system is rigged and unfortunately supply and demand does not work because they have been using our taxes really since 1933 with the Agriculture Act, which turned into the Farm Bill, but they're using our taxes to subsidize livestock and dairy and, and livestock feed. And then they're using our taxes for for bailouts. So a subsidy, basically, think about it as welfare. It is basically corporate welfare. 
in this sense. So what happens is, is our taxes um, pay for their overhead costs. So their land can be subsidized. The feed, the soy feed can be subsidized. The water can be subsidized. The equipment can be subsidized. Their insurance policies for if the animal dies for a weather-related event um, can be subsidized. Their insurance where uh, it, it pays them if their margins get reduced by a market condition like what we have going on here, they get paid that back, those are subsidized. Their insurance policies uh, that pay them for losses when things like tar Chinese tariffs prevent sales from happening are our taxes paying for those pre insurance premiums. And so our taxes through subsidies have made them fail proof. It's paying their overhead costs. So if anyone has owns a business today, or there's any entrepreneurs listening to this, you know that you price your product and your profit is based on um, a mixture of what the market can bear, as well as subtracting your overhead costs. And so imagine what you could do if your product was subsidized by our tax dollars where the majority of your price was all profit, right? And so what happens there is you start getting, especially with the insurance policies, you start getting into a weird manipulation of supply and demand. Now, there's bailouts on top of that. Bailouts have been increasing during the Trump administration like they've never before. Trump completely knows that politically he needs farmers to vote for him, and I can talk about their political power in just a second. But bailouts um, used to be in the 20 million to 50 million range, are now in the billions. Last year it was 28 billion, and this year it's already been close to 40 or 50 billion in, uh, with a mixture of different programs that are also included in the coronavirus relief package. So bailouts are the worst thing that's happened to the vegan movement because it, it, our taxes are now at war with our consumerism and it allows them to overproduce and our taxes wipe clean of all of their losses, whether from Chinese tariffs or from veganism, it literally wipes clean our consumerism. And so what we have to do is we have to look at social justice in the lens that it was designed. Our activism is the social part. We absolutely need to change people's minds and morals, but there will always be people and industries who will not morally change, right? So the justice part is the legal and laws and the systemic part of the food system, which is that it's rigged. And so we have to, we have to change these laws. We have to change the narrative and we have to go against this. This is not just isolated for the vegan movement for any social justice movement. I guarantee you, you have to change the systemic part of it as well as the social part. And so that is what subsidies and bailouts are and, and you know, what, how we're trying to educate people and, and what we're trying to work up against. If I could just mention that what this system does is it incentivizes farmers to overproduce. So they overproduce waste 
animals, put them in a stockpile. The stockpile is the biggest it's ever been. And now they don't even, um, now they don't even have storage space any, for it anymore. You see them dumping milk out. You see them euthanizing pigs, making other excuses about, oh, the supply system's fragmented, so I can't actually get it to food banks. And it's such a lie because our bailouts, if, if a payment for their meat got it to a restaurant, a bailout for that meat should get it to a food bank. That was the purpose of a bailout and bailouts that happened through FDR, um, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, in the 30s in response to the Great Depression. So what you're saying about the supply and demand, as vegan activists, we often say, you know, if we just decrease the demand, decrease the demand for meat, increase the demand for, for plant-based foods, then the supply will go down. What you're saying is that that it's that's not necessarily the case because of the way the system is set up. This system is rigged, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Supply has never dropped. Our veganism is through the roof. It's absolutely working. Our consumerism is bringing unicorn stocks, um, you know, that haven't happened since the Palm Pilot, like in 2000, with Beyond Meat being a unicorn stock. We, it isn't even just about how many dedicated vegans are eating vegan food. Like I know people struggle with, is 3% of the population vegan? Is 5%? Is 8%? The truth is, is, you know, you have stats that show there are 25% that incorporate plant-based meats into their diet, whether it's every day or some days. And none of that demand makes, is changing the system because they keep getting bailed out. I've, we've done some rough estimates and based on the oversupply of how many in the stockpile, how many animals could have been saved. It's literally 250 million to 500 million animals get slaughtered for year that are not demanded. Mm. 250 million to 500 million not demanded. In the dairy industry. Not, not going to a product, not going to meat, but just being... Wasted. wasted. Yeah. Yep. And then with, with dairy, there's about 10 million, nine to 10 million dairy cows in rotation in the United States. It equates to one to one to 3 million dairy cows in rotation that shouldn't be there. Those are the animals that we were promised by our veganism that we would save. That's why lobbying is so important for this movement right now. And you know, I am not political. I don't have a political background. I'm an anarchist. I'm an activist. And what this made me realize is, is lobbying is, is taking activism to politicians and to the White House. It's channeling your communication. And so, you know, it is an extension of our activism and it's imperative. It's imperative that we become lobbying members um, to to channel and centralize money to pay for these lobbyists, just like big agriculture does. Um, and it's important that we understand the local channels of communication that we can even have on, you know, pressuring even our local um, ho- house reps and senators on these subjects. So I want to turn to current events and the world has 
once again in 2020 turned upside down in the last couple of weeks with the death of George Floyd and several incidents of injustice right in a row, the gunning down of uh, Ahmed Arbery and, and, and other incidents. It's heartbreaking to see all these terrible events. And at the same time, it's really inspiring too that so many people are taking to the streets and speaking out all over the world. And you've spoken about the importance of connecting oppressions and engaging with you know, social justice issues. You've mentioned that there is systematic racism in the food system. Um, can you talk a little about all this? Yeah, so so I'll talk about the systemic food uh, food system racism first, and then I'll I'll segue into current events. Um, I think they deserve their own sort of you know um, sentiment that's a little bit different. The the systemic racism in the food system. So you have we have to think about every system as having kind of the same oppressor, like this elite oppressor has a very, very similar prototype, especially in America. The founding of this country was farmers and they've kept everything intact since. They were racist, they were, they were xenophobes. They, you know, uh, the, to, to continue to do livestock farming, essentially pushing their um, livestock farms, as we know today, uses up and destroys land. And so as soon as they start doing that, they start taking over other people's land. So you start seeing indigenous communities getting affected by this first industry. And then you have slaves being brought over here to tend to their farming. Um, or the farming industry, in a lot of ways, sat at the top of oppression. And so today, the way the, the food system is systemically racist, there's a lot of things. So, so one is food inequity. You have less than 1% of subsidies that go to direct-to-consumer fruits and vegetables. Less than 1% of our taxes pay for fruits and vegetables direct-to-consumer. So the majority of it pays for livestock, dairy, livestock feed. And so you have to understand that subsidized food is accessible food. Subsidized food is what all socioeconomic conditions can afford or almost can afford. Even the SNAP programs, it, it provides access to meat and dairy, you know, at discounted prices. And so what happens to people with low socioeconomic conditions or in neighborhoods of people of color, you'll start seeing these incredible food deserts and the food deserts will not have any healthy food and accessibility to vegan food at all. It'll be fast food restaurants and it'll be um, places that, that, uh, that might accept, you know, SNAP program filled with mostly meat and dairy products. And unfortunately, very few fruits and vegetables and the ones that are there cost a lot more. So if your SNAP card gives you 50 to 100 and something a month, then, you know, it's really hard to use it up in that way. And SNAP, um, is, the, SNAP is the food, food stamps. Correct. It's the new, it's a new version of food stamps. And so, 
And so what happens is, is we, we really make vegan food inaccessible to certain communities, especially communities of color. And so then the food system with, is, is kind of forcing unhealthy food on them, which causes health issues, right? Other things are that the subsidy and bailout recipients are 99.5% white, like 91% male. So people of color have been pushed out of farming for the last 100 years. At the turn of the century, 50% of African Americans were farmers. After slavery ended and you had slaves who already worked on farms, it was natural for them to try to achieve to get land and be farmers. They were great farmers. And so, you know, anytime there was a loan or a subsidy program or you have um, farmers needing help, you know, from the dust bowl that was caused, Black farmers had no access to this. And so, even back then, we repeat those same things today. Our subsidies are our cowboy welfare, and it is a 99.5% white recipient. It goes further where this causes social racism, where we wag our finger at the black and brown SNAP recipient for taking welfare, when really those subsidies are elite white welfare. And so it's really weird that every time people talk about welfare, they talk about, I don't want my taxes paying for, you know, someone to, to live off of and, and things like that. But you never hear someone, I don't want my taxes paying for white farmers to dump out unused dairy or put it in a stockpile. I don't want our taxes, you know, having them waste food. You never hear that. You know, and, and these farmers are bringing in, gosh, you have no idea the amounts. You can get like $125,000 a year per family member. And the, the head of household can get 900000 for them alone and for their partner, you know, 900000 as well. They can build mega empire family farms through these subsidy programs and nobody asks them to get drug tested nobody asks them for receipts nobody asks them you know or says oh you better not be you know buying alcohol and cigarettes with those subsidies it is a huge in my opinion foundation of of racism in in the dialogue that you hear in the United States and it all is systemic from how the food system has um, continuously distributed money with no over scrutiny to the farming industry well furthering this conversation of you know systematic racism uh and the discussion that is currently really amplified about police brutality and 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 specifically you know violence against our black communities what are your thoughts on how uh, how to fix these systems so the synergies remain and i am i am half hispanic and and white, and I grew up in Oklahoma, and most of my adult life I've lived in big cities, and I lived in a lot of them. I feel like I have a really good perspective on overt and covert racism in the United States. Um, and I understand the systemic aspect of racism 
when I see this stuff play out, you know, it absolutely for years has been targeting marginalized communities. Um, A lot of systems do, but specifically with the police system and the the police system, when you look at sheriffs and you look at police unions, you look at DAs and you look at their track record, there's just no accountability. The synergies that exist is that part of social justice, which is marching the streets is amazing. It absolutely is bringing the dialogue and you know it's bringing up the discussion and it's showing the outrage that, that Americans have about something that has been going on for a while. It isn't just about George Floyd. You know, there's still not resultative accountability from Breonna Taylor, which happened, you know, recently, where where, uh, cops barged into the wrong address and just start shooting up a, a house. Like, there's no accountability there. This is a civil rights movement in 2020. Our grandchildren will look back on these videos and they will wonder what side we were on. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about that and how you feel about the vegan community and how we need to respond to this moment in history. Are, are there things that we could be doing better as a vegan community? Are there things that we're doing to obstruct as a vegan community, you know, what should we as a movement be focusing on? So our org has had uh, inclusivity policies, but actually three months ago before, um, you know, the protest, we wanted to make our inclusivity policy, not just something that lives on our website, but something that is like a badge that shows that we encourage diversity empowerment within our org that we are going to make it a safe space not only within our within our volunteers but also anywhere we end up on stage at a vegan event doing speaking or any sort of march that we go to you know before you and me got on this interview i think i um, reached out to you saying i did want to discuss this subject and you definitely were all for it and you know you have that anti-oppression stance we as a movement need to be making sure that our activists are are safe around other activists we need to do a better job and we need to empower their voices um and you know not uh not take their victim their victimhood away from their oppression and, and use it to veganize people or use it to call them a hypocrite, right? We can absolutely do better. So with our policy right now, we're actually working with um, people, if, uh, black vegans from the movement that have been very hurt by this. And we want to make sure that if they're part of our organization, that not just us, but at an event, the event, let's say it's a veg fest, needs to adopt these policies that say that groups or people that don't believe in these things uh, can't come because it puts us all at risk. We as a movement need to understand, like, do we want, do, do we literally preach things about justice constantly, right? And not even live it 
like in our lives. And if you're an activist and you're part of an organization or group and you need to think about your fellow activists standing next to you, whether you hold a computer screen, whether you're going to give, you know, pigs water before they're at a slaughterhouse, those activists next to you face all different types of oppression. Are you literally making them feel like they're unsafe to do activism with you because you're rejecting these things to be true? Is it making black males feel welcome to do activism, especially when police come? Police come to activism events all the time. Do they feel safe when you're saying that police don't, aren't over aggressive with the black community? If you say that, they'll never show up at your activism. It's crazy to think that we wouldn't protect the people in our own, that make up our own community. And it's, it's crazy to think that we want a vegan world and you think that you're going to veganize somebody that you wouldn't even protect. Like, what, is the, what, what does that even say about, about us? We're going to try to veganize someone to get their consumer dollars to save animals, but we wouldn't protect that person? I mean, we have to do better. Every one of us has to do better. We can't let people make us feel like we're not hardcore for animals simply because we support um, this civil rights movement and we'll do activism for it and speak out against it. So we have to wrap it up now. Thank you so much for uh, being with us and having this conversation. It's been really incredibly educational. How can people support your organizations, learn more about what you do? And I believe that they can even become a lobbying member of your group. Is that correct? Correct. So um, you can go to veganjusticeleague.com or agriculturefairnessalliance.org. And becoming a member helps us scale. We absolutely need it. We, we went from educating the community um, and hoping we'd get a lobbyist right at, you know, um, and we actually got one faster than we thought. We earned enough donations and memberships to hire our lobbyists. 100% of our donations and memberships go to lobbyists. So all of us are volunteers. We're super grassroots. We have about 500 paying members. That's such a small fraction of the vegan movement. And for us being at one of the you know, one of the few federal national level lobbying groups that speaks on behalf of animals and tries to put leg push legislation to end these stockpiles and bailouts, we absolutely need to, you know, be on board with this lobbying um, aspect, whether with my group or another. So memberships are super important, you know, sending a certain amount a month because we pay our lobbyists per month. I want to scale to five lobbyists. I want to have a team of lobbyists playing office, offense and defense. Offense would be pushing new legislation. Defense is defending what all these other politicians who are owned by, you know, the agriculture system. I, I want, to, want them to defend um, those laws from being passed and drive animal liberation through not allowing bills that help the agriculture industry grow stronger. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, under the, hand, under the handles that are Agriculture Fairness Alliance and Vegan Justice League. My Instagram handle is vegan underscore Batgirl, B-A-T-G-I-R-L. Um, I tell truths that cross the board. Right now, um, my post has the Philadelphia um, police just cornering activists 
into a fence. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my life um, of how our system acts to protesters. And um, so if you want the whole gamut of vegan activism, lobbying, data, outspoken across, you know, different forms of oppression, follow me. If that's not your cup of tea, don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, Connie Spence. It's been a fantastic conversation. And thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk on this so much. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. You can support this podcast by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That really helps us out. And please do your part to help make the world a better place for animals and live vegan. Thank you.